Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. Monique Goyens is the extremely charismatic director of general of Book, the European Consumer Organization. She is the voice of consumers in Brussels, representing 43 independent national consumer associations in 32 European countries. Over the years, uh, Monique has managed to ensure that consumer interests are given weight in the development of policies. When it comes to sustainability and the energy transition, Monique is certainly one of the first people to have called on European authorities to put citizens at the center. She is also very active in addressing greenwashing. I believe that European citizens owe a lot to Monique enthusiasm. Monique, welcome to Energetic. Hello, thank you for inviting me. Monique, I want to become like you when I grow up. So where do I start? <laughs> no, seriously, what brought you to uh, leading book? Well, first of all, I'm a lawyer by training. And at the beginning of my career, I really wanted to do something useful for the people. And in fact, my first job was working at university at the Consumer Law Research Center. And there were only, at that time, you know, like 40 years ago, can I admit it, there were only a few consumer lawyers. So I was really very proud to be part of these pioneers. And then, of course, um, when the job as Burke Director General uh, was vacant, I said to myself, I really have to try it because uh, it is uh, such an exciting job. I knew a lot of the people already, uh, but I did not expect such a tsunami of files that need to be uh, taken on board. Uh, and, and I'm really very proud to be at Burke because we really feel that we are useful every day. And how many people were there at Burke at the time? And uh, and now, because I've seen that your organization has been growing over years and the topics that you're, that you're managing have been growing over the years. So do you have any insights on this? So uh, when I uh, started in 2007, we did not really work on energy. Uh, okay. And it is over the years that we really became aware of the fact that energy is such an important part of your household budget. And it's also an important part of the climate a transition that we really uh, stepped up our work on that. And we have, uh, in fact, a team that is composed of sustainability experts and of energy experts from the consumer perspective. And that makes our work, uh, let's say, much more how that making a difference at the European level. Yeah, 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 uh, totally. I mean, they, the the files over the years, they, are, they have been getting closer and closer. And maybe 10 or 15 years ago, it was not the case. They were like sustainability on the one hand and energy. No, let's not talk about energy. You know, it's like sausages. You don't want to know what's inside. And can I say they didn't want us to know what was inside. Because when I started in 2007, the first edition of the Citizen Energy Forum, and in fact, uh, we were only allowed to be there as observers and we were not allowed to speak. And can you see how uh, this citizen energy forum has really become a citizen energy forum where there was much more stakeholder engagement? And that's also one of the achievements that we are proud of because we were really able to refocus, you know, really to switch the, the telescope around in order to address the citizens' uh, questions rather than the questions of the incumbent energy companies. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember we had the conversation once when we said that 
consumers were treated like children. You you just impose the decisions on them and then you expect them to do the job. But if they don't know what they should do or how they should act or if they don't have a voice, well, it's normal that they don't want to, to participate or they feel... Yeah, there is some kind of frustration. So so your job is has also been to bring some make them part of the solution, make them part of the journey too. And this is really very important because fundamentally energy is an essential service. People don't want to really bother about it, you know, they just want it to work. Uh, mm-hmm. and on the other end, they need to be part, they need to voice what their expectations are and what their needs are. That's why I have been hammering over the years that if you really want to engage consumers into the energy market and into the energy policy files, you need to make energy attractive for them. And now, of course, with the, with the new technologies, it's it's quite something that can happen. Huh? And the, the fact that it needs to be attractive is a major factor to having people uh, engage and they need to engage. Huh? They need to mm-hmm. engage survival reasons, not only for your own uh, savings, because the budget, you know, the energy budget has exploded, but also for the planet. So it's really important to make energy attractive. I always say, you know, uh, at conferences, you need to make it sexy. And you know, that's a word that works a lot. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, of course, now the, the prices like skyrocketing prices and uh, that's one of the many concerns that link really our lifestyles with uh, climate warming and overall the climate questions. So honestly, I feel that the political agenda for consumers is is really hot. And I mean, it's the pun is intended also because of the to high temperature we are experiencing now. Okay. So between those energy prices, the, the need to consume of all better and, and less and, you know, circular economy and be a little bit more mindful with the way we consume. Food safety too and uh, security of food supply, uh, inflation, our savings that are shrinking because of inflation and uh, also our relationship with financial services. I mean, it's all linked. It's it's all seems so complicated and overwhelming. I'm not even mentioning digital data. It feels that the consumer of tomorrow has absolutely nothing to do with the one of yesterday. And there's so much on our plates. So what do you think the priorities should be and the major in emerging trends? How can we as international community make that happen for the good of everyone? Well, I mean, of course, let's focus, let's boil it down to two elements, energy and energy poverty, uh, relating to energy prices. If you help people to save energy, you will get them out of energy poverty, you will get them out of poverty, mm-hmm. because the energy bill is the biggest one that you mm-hmm. need to invest. And the most frustrating thing when you work on energy poverty is to see that those people pay the highest prices while their houses are not insulated. So it's all mm-hmm. just in cold in the winter, you see? So we believe that the most important uh, step to undertake is really to invest into energy efficiency. Energy mm-hmm. for houses, because that's the biggest post in your household budget, but then also for appliances. And sometimes there are very low-hanging foods, for example, like um, putting LED lights. Many mm-hmm. people for their old light bulbs to be, you know, break to break down, but it would be a better investment to just now invest and replace all your light bulbs by LED light or just insulate better your water boiler. It costs you 30 euro and you can save 100 euro in one year. So mm-hmm. efficiency is for us the biggest focus all over Europe and even over the world, but I have no mm-hmm. say 
uh, on the world. So that's why we really would like all this, you know, this um, uh, also the repower EU strategy, the rollout of that strategy should be translated into energy efficiency directed mostly as, at the most, uh, let's say, the most poor, the poorest, the less affluent ones. By the way, rising energy prices has, a, has an effect not only on consumers, but also on industry or on, on suppliers. So leading to higher food prices, higher bread prices we see now in Belgium, where I live, where there is really a, an increase in bread, which is the basic food. And so uh, there will be over, everywhere there will be increase. And not, it's not only energy, yeah? it's food, mm-hmm. uh, it's materials. So it's re- really important to keep the energy prices down and also to pro- to provide, let's say, um, also at in- industry or professional level, uh, energy savings. Because mm-hmm. if the baker is less, has a more energy efficient system, he will also be able to uh, to reduce their, their own cost. The second challenge, so energy is a really big thing. And we had our General Assembly last week. So all European consumer organizations came together in Brussels last week. And inflation and how to fight inflation was the number one common concern. So this is really very important. And tackling, of course, you have then, you need to tackle that with energy efficiency measures in the medium and long term and in the short term with social policy. You need Mm -hmm. to have the poorest one. That's really something that is key. But then uh, another, can I say, sleeping giant is the digital transformation. Because we speak a lot about informed consumers, but what we see with the digitalization and the data economy is that uh, some big tech player, they know much more about you and me than ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they make us very vulnerable. So when we speak about consumer information, there is a huge risk of mm-hmm. consumer manipulation because mm-hmm. somebody else will decide what you will receive as an information. You know, it's this information bubble. And so there are too many legislative initiatives that are being based on information. Because this is not the consumer, the informed consumer is more and more a myth. Mm-hmm. Of course, information per se is something that you cannot really um, say that is bad. But while the way information is brought to you can be very much unfair and manipulated, you need also to go one step further, which is uh, protecting of consumers, mm-hmm. you know, protecting of your data, protecting of your consent. For example, I saw yesterday on you know, I like Twitter. And I saw on Twitter Porsche, who was very proud to say, we will protect the privacy of the data that is produced by the cars that you drive. But then you must be rich. So that everybody should, even if I have a little Twingo or whatever, a, a Zoe, I should be able to benefit from that privacy. So yeah. it should be a marketing uh, argument. It should be just the right. You see? Yeah, it should be a no-brainer. It should be like the norm and not not the exception uh, for rich people. It seems quite evident that really rich people are extremely privy and they manage to to fly under the radar of many many things. But let's say normal people like like you and I, we are obviously sharing way too much information to to providers that we don't. We can't even name. I mean, that's also one of the things. Right, every time we visit a, a website, there are. So, do, do you accept cookies? When when at first it arrived, I was like, okay, I shouldn't accept cookies from strangers. But but then you see them all the time, and and it's basically like, okay, but what does that mean? And how can I put myself into it and and make that valuable too? Because if it's free, then I'm the product. You've been saying that for ages now, but I'm I'm glad to see that things are moving on. 
I'll have it on my phone. You know, when I get a, a message, my phone already proposes an answer. Yeah. So that means that somebody, I mean, somebody, it's a machine, but it's reading the content of my mails. Yeah. Uh, is that normal? Now, of course, there is a part of convenience. Uh, but, at the, well, but there is also a huge part of risk. And can I say this is then going out of the consumer dimension? Because mm -hmm. if you and I are manipulated as consumers, we will also be manipulated as citizens. Yeah. And the data that we are producing that are being sold to third parties, they are also being sold to people who don't necessarily want us to live in a democratic system. And so uh, this is really key for us. And by the way, we are very happy because there the European Commission is working on a, a new strategy or a new regulatory initiative, but we are at the very early beginnings, which is called digital fairness. Mm -hmm. so that could be something where there has been a wake-up call. Uh, we have had enough scandals, by the way, huh, coming yeah. from those, uh, starting with Brexit. We have, uh, that was certainly a lesson that has not yet been totally uh, learned. Uh, but uh, it's important that there is, let's say, strong regulatory intervention in order to protect our democracies. Yeah, I mean, linking that to the energy sector, we are more and more seeing uh, digital tools within the home and like uh, smart homes and services. And I mean, of course, they can be super convenient, but there has also been studies showing that basically Alexa or Siri can, can listen to, to your conversation. I've read once that it has also saved some lives by, you know, alerting the police that there was uh, there was a problem in the home. But it can also be it's it's quite scary to 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 think that somebody is listening to you at all time. So what are your what is Buck's position on this, on this digital home and how to make it safer and more trustworthy somehow? Well, first of all, you have the fact that uh, those uh, appliances or devices are indeed spying on you. Uh, and this happens with Alexa because that's very well known and it's even transparent. And it happens also with other, um, you know, it can happen with your smart fridge also. There you are less well aware of it. The point is, why not if it, if you are in control? And the yeah. problem, you know, like what you said, do you accept the cookies or do you not? And if you don't, you need to go through such a nightmare of deactivating and you don't even know what it means because it's so so unclear. So there must be much more control to the to what we call the data subject. That's the one part. But the second part uh, of all those home devices, and certainly that can be really useful in having a smart energy consumption, it is that they are not secure. So mm -hmm. independent of what the system wants to know about you, if it is not cyber secure, it can be hackable. hackable And then your whole system, not only at your house, but even in the neighborhood, can be at risk. Wow. Yes, because in fact, and it is, the problem is any point of entry can lead to like contamination. It's a little bit like those virus. It's a virus. Huh? <laughs> it can be your water kettle that is not secure enough. And sometimes, most of the time, it, it will not be your, you know, your main system. But if your water kettle, uh, all those low cost devices that have mm -hmm. a power like one, two, three, or even don't have a password at all, they are very easily hackable. And we have already had some life experiences, you know, uh, where, where that can be easily ha hacked by ethical hackers, just to show how in, in 20 minutes it's done. And that means that you are at risk without even knowing it. So it's privacy and security that need to be upgraded if you want to live in a smart uh, world at home or yeah. anywhere else. 
Yes. <laughs> but should regulation on this come from a European perspective or international? Because there was, there could be norms as well with the uh, international trade organization or something like that. Because I mean, with products traveling back and forth between countries and so many things being produced in China, you you would expect like the same level of security. Everywhere. I mean, there you open a huge Pandora's box. <laughs> okay. You really can be sure that at European level, we have the best standard in terms of data protection. Okay. Uh, if we go for international standards, we are going to be op- faced with opposition, huge opposition from the United <laughs> States, from China. Because first of all, uh, certainly, I mean, either because there are the big tech players who just have their business model that is based on harvesting and really, you know, hoovering your data. So they are making a lot of money with your data and and all our data. And then you have also um, countries like China who are very much state uh, authoritarian. And they, of course, also want to have access to the data of their citizens uh, without having to uh, explain why and uh, and for what reason. So uh, at international level, it would, of course, be better because then Mm -hmm. you have a national law that would apply around the planet. Uh, but that's uh, a dream that will not never come true because there are too many different interests. What okay. is the, the challenge now is to be sure that the data produced by European citizens or by citizens who live in Europe are not at risk just because they are, you know, um, managed or processed by a company that is not necessarily in Europe. Yeah, it's exactly like what happened a few years ago with the scandal with the Facebook that was processing some some data. Yeah. They were not processing the data in the uh, from American citizens, but they were processing the, the European one. Yeah, and of course, this happens quite a lot, and it's very complicated technically to trace back. Mm-hmm. And so, the, this is what uh, there is a huge discussion between the EU and the US. And you know, there was the privacy shield, a shield that has been also con- uh, the European Court of Justice has considered that that was not in line with European data protection legislation, uh, and uh, there is a lot. Uh, there is a lot about free data flows, also at WTO, so the World Trade Organization, because, of course, the companies are pushing for as much freedom to let the data flow mm-hmm. uh, as possible. There is, of course, also this aspect of data localization, which can be dangerous because it can be an authoritarian state. So we need to find a, a balance between our freedom to keep our data safe from uh, proceedings that we would not allow under European rules and then the fact also that you should not let authoritarian states uh, keep data uh, within their country with obligations that are not in line with our own GDPR. So it's it's a very mm-hmm. complex situation. But then when you speak about hackable products uh, coming from China or unsecure products, uh, we see for the moment there is a lot, one of the biggest concerns that we have for the moment in terms of product safety. So not uh, it can be anything, right? it can be toys, it can be chemicals, it can be uh, cosmetics, it can be small uh, electronics. We see that a lot is being bought on online marketplaces. So, you know, it's uh, the Amazons, Alibaba or AliExpress, uh, eBay. So, but not them as being retailers, but rather as making the link between a seller, a third party yeah. seller and you as a consumer. And there we see that there is a lot of things that are not compliant uh, with mm-hmm. uh, in legislation in terms of safety and cyber security that right. come into, uh, into Europe and that are not being controlled because it's private parcels. Okay. And so the government's authorities cannot really uh, protect uh, the people in a, in a good way. And so we are asking online marketplaces to be much more liable uh, mm-hmm. and to see uh, who their seller is before putting European consumers at risk. This is a big file for the moment. 
What should an individual do when they realize that uh, the marketplace seller is like kind of processing their data in a non-compliant way or in a bizarre way? Or if, if something feels a little bit odd, let's say it, what, what should, should people do? Well, if you, I mean, then you can just complain to your National Data Protection Authority. Uh, okay. uh, or you can, of course, uh, also, uh, if that's a little bit too complicated, you can also go to a consumer organization or to a human rights organization. Because then if those organizations receive several complaints uh, concerning the same provider, be the mm -hmm. market or be it any, can it also be your telephone company huh? or your your uh, even your energy company, if they ask you questions that you think is not normal, that should also certainly uh, be alerted uh, towards to the data protection authorities. And then uh, consumer organizations can cluster and then say to the DPA, data protection authority, hey guys, there is a problem there, would you not investigate that? But there is a huge problem of enforcement. Huh? Sometimes mm -hmm. we that uh, GDPR, so the General Data Protection Regulation, which is the cornerstone of the whole system, uh, is a paper tiger because it's so complicated to enforce. Very often you and I are not aware of what's happening with our data. So it really needs some geeks to come behind that. Huh? I have some colleagues uh, spread over Europe who not only are very good you know, lawyers, they know the, le the legislation, but they also know how to check into the technicalities what's happening to the data. And sometimes, just to give you an example, if you want to deactivate your location on your mm -hmm. smartphone, you can do that. But that is only, that leads to the deactivation of the notification, but you are still being located. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's only part of the picture and like, it's like the tip of the iceberg. Yes. yes, yes. Okay. So there's yeah. still, but that you cannot, as a, as a normal person, you cannot see that. You cannot check that because you don't know. And it's about codes and what have you. Uh, it's complicated. And in fact, also what we very often say is that the data protection authorities, they lack, in fact, the geeks, you know, mm -hmm. you need to be able to control what's happening. It is not enough to see that, oh, you have Google or Facebook or whoever has changed their terms and conditions. Mm -hmm. That's not enough. That's just a piece of paper or a piece of a screenshot. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, that does not mean that um, in real, in practice, that really happens. It's, it's a very, very tricky environment, I must say. Mm, I mean, it's about uh, layers and layers and you can't really know everything. So somehow it's not good for trust and uh, trust in, in policymakers in general and trust between businesses and consumers. And so what do we do? In effect, it, this, is really what, uh, this is really totally correct what you say. When we ask people what they think about their privacy and how it's being managed, the, 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 the sentiment that we receive from the people, the surveyed people, not all of them, but the majority, the, the mainstream is we care about our data. We are worried, but what can you do? It's really a feeling of helplessness. You want the service, you don't have the choice. And this is something, uh, the only thing that I, as a consumer, I try to be as less exposed as possible and I try to have as less connected products as possible. You know, I don't need a connected washing machine, really. Mm -hmm. I don't need it. Uh, I have, I'm old enough uh, to have made my wash, my, my washings uh, without having a, a whatever, uh, you know, um, a smart device on it. Sometimes it's even difficult to deactivate. So what we are saying, first of all, everything needs to be deactivatable. You know, mm -hmm. if I don't want a water kettle, sometimes you don't even find a model without the connectivity. 
but you should be able to deconnect it, you know, to deactivate it. And what is really important also is to provide space, and that could be done under innovation and research programs, to more privacy-friendly uh, undertakings. I think that that could be really a marketing argument because people are fed up with mm. being tracked. You see, and here it's just because they don't have a choice. So I think that, uh, and I say always, you know, in, in my office here, people are not allowed to use Google as a search engine because okay. Google is not. And when the European Commission sends me a document on Google Drive, I say, sorry, we don't use Google. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, there you were talking about uh, connected washing machine recently in one of your, of your posts on, on Book uh, website. Uh, you shared your story with your electric vehicle and you also said that you managed to get some solar panels on your roof as a renter. Yeah, one of the arguments for connected devices is also that it would be able to respond to the electricity produced from the solar panel. And so how do you manage that? Because somehow, maybe do you imagine that you would lose some, some of the flexibility that is offered by your solar panel by not being able to launch your washing machine at the, the most convenient time? That's a good question. I mean, I'm not going back to the old ages. Huh? Yeah can be really something that is convenient and that is that leads to more sustainability and all for that <laughs> what i don't want so i'm happy that my connected washing machine is connected to my solar panels or to the system where there is a high level a high uh, production level of solar energy what i don't want is the connected washing machine having a communication with third parties about my washing habits you see mm -hmm. yeah that is what I, uh, that i want to be able to control of yeah. course i want my connected car to provide a signal to the uh, emergency services if i'm lost somewhere in the middle of a you know uh, if i had an accident and i have no possibility for me uh, to to get my myself the emergency services that is a smart use of connectivity mm -hmm. But I don't want my car to tell me, here you here you have a McDonald's, uh, you should take a break here because they have just a promotion on the McFlurries, you know, this type of thing. And this is something where you really need to be able, for the moment, it is too complicated to be in control mm -hmm. uh, of this type of uh, sharing of data with third party. If the data and the connectivity is linked to a service that is really beneficial for me and that I have decided to receive, then it's, of course, good. And, of course, you cannot have smart energy without connectivity because you need always to get in touch with the whole system in order to be able to, to have this, you know, this integration of the, the smart grids that is needed. Okay, I get it. That's really interesting. And, you know, uh, this question of privacy, I think we don't address them enough in day-to-day -day conversations and in the general press. Nobody mentioned them, but a few months ago, I was in Africa for a project and the main utility, I mean, there is only one utility over there in the country where I was, was concerned about the privacy of the data from their, from their consumers. And I found it really interesting that there was this kind of, level of awareness that those people were okay to have a more resilient, flexible system, but they still wanted data protection. And they've already understood that there is a, they can be a problem and they don't want to be hacked. So yeah, there is a conversation we can start in maybe unexpected places. And uh, we, we really need to, to keep on with, the, with this uh, conversation. I think that uh, we can learn a lot of from Africa because, you know, Africa was also ahead of us when it came to mobile mobile systems, mobile phone systems, because they just skipped the fixed uh, telephone line system because, you know, they 
they, they jumped that, that stage of the development. Also, you know, there is this believing in, in Africa, animism, they call it. They don't want to take pictures of themselves in many cases. So there is there might be this also importance of privacy that is much stronger with uh, African culture than with European culture. So that might be really something that we might learn from. Yeah, and... For instance, mobile payments, it's really very, it's super common out there. And uh, uh, all these kind of tools on, on certain aspects, they are way more advanced because it's the safest way to communicate and to to exchange uh, data or information. But, but you know, I've seen that all of them, they are all hooked to YouTube anyway. So uh, there is, <laughs> we were mentioning the, the Google and, uh, well, YouTube is, is part of it. So somehow there must be a, a lot of, of traction uh, out there too. Yeah. So, Monique, what do we need to get to the next level of an informed, empowered, sustainable consumer? Well, you know that uh, empowerment is something like um, a buzzword also in Europe. And we are looking at that with uh, a lot of um, of skepticism uh, if it's only coming with information. Like I said, mm -hmm. information is not enough. So the consumer needs to be part of the energy transition, which is part of the bigger climate and sustainability transition. It's energy, it's also food. Huh? We need to move towards healthier diets. And what I, uh, what we here at Berg always say is that as a policymaker, if you really want to empower consumers, you need three things. And it's true for energy, it's true for everything. You need to make the sustainable option the easy one, Mm -hmm. Meaning it must be not, uh, you know, on the high shelves in the supermarket, but it must be at eye level. I mean, of course, this is only for the products, but it's just the, the easy thing that needs to be upfront. You need to make it uh, attractive huh? because it must really be also not, uh, you know, something boring. It must really be made uh, attractive. And when you look at the attractivity of vegetarian food over the last years, you mm -hmm. really see it ha there has been an uptake because it, it has been seen for very long as boring and, you know, only a mono diets while it's so diverse that it's really fun to be a vegetarian, huh? even if you're not full-time vegetarian. And the third thing, it must be affordable. It must be the most yeah. affordable solution. People will start taking more the train if there is no VAT on trains and if there is a tax on the CO2 emissions on, um, you know, uh, on, on flights. I mean, for the moment, kerosene is not being taxed, which oh, is... Wow. Yeah. So, uh, of course, people are always, uh, and for good reasons also, because economic reasons, they are always attracted towards the lowest price. This is just nature, human nature. But then you need really to provide the price signals that will yeah. put people into the right uh, direction. And also uh, the other signals, for example, the EU, we are not going to ban eating meat. I mean, this would be something that would be really seen as a punishment by too many people. We don't want people to feel punished to be sustainable, but we should stop marketing campaigns by the European Commission paid by the taxpayer to eat more meat. Yeah. So that uh, let them make those marketing campaigns to eat more fr fruit and vegetables, huh? mm. or subsidies to meat producers than to vegetable producers. So this is the type of uh, signals from all sides, uh, fiscal signals, market signals, and also, let's say, fund signals in order to steer the consumer they know more and more that they are part of the much needed part of the transition, but they need to be put in the seat of driving that transition. And mm -hmm. that's affordability, uh, attractivity and uh, easiness. 
Yeah, this weekend I I read this really nice quote summarizing how to engage people. It's with the carrot, the stick, and the tambourine. And uh, you, Monique, have been a great tambourine, but also behind a lot of the carrot and the sticks. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I mean, I feel it's really important to also acknowledge that uh, Brussels is not only made out of big lobbies of industries, but also of consumer voices like yours who are influential, who have been influential and who will be influential because you know better and the European Commission is ready to listen to you. So I think that there is also something important to in the overall European narrative to, to acknowledge that consumers are at the driving seat and it's not only uh, nice words, but it's, it's the truth. <laughs> yes, and I think that in the months and years to come, we will not be bored. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so what's on your plate? What, what's the next challenge, Monique? For me, the next challenge is uh, to get the energy transition. You know, that all the principles have been uh, put on paper now. Now we will need to roll them out to the people. It's yeah. really, you know, uh, Europe, I think there have been a really, this commission has done a great number of good things for, the, for the, uh, the consumers and for the people, but now it needs to trickle down to your life and my life uh, and to the life of the 420 million other uh, consumers. And that's something where the member states have a huge responsibility because sometimes, you know, there are hurdles about between the good principles and, and the, the, their implementation. And that needs to be done now in very challenging times because we have a war huh? that needs to be uh, really also uh, prioritized but also part of the response that we give to the war is giving response to the needs of the people which is lower prices I mean lower prices because less dependency on energy uh, so uh, coming from uh, fossil fuels and from Russia in particular so that uh, I, for me this is really now how can we make this a reality working with our members in the different countries in order to uh, push the, the national governments uh, to also now uh, make the most consumer-centric rollout of the energy directives and uh, recommendations and also now uh, seeing what uh, in the in the digital area can be done in order to make it the most fair ecosystem that we are going to live in for the years to come. Okay, thank you so much, Monique. It's been an enlightening question. It was an absolute pleasure to have you today. If you have one last word, uh, give the floor to you and then that's a wrap. <laughs> I would just say, uh, I would ask all consumers to stick to their guns and just not to be shy uh, and to, when there is a complaint, they have to voice it because that's the way that we can then bring their complaint to the decision makers. We need people to tell us what's going wrong or what they would need to see improved. And that's also important to know that there are uh, relays in the media risk that you can count on. So yes. Thank you, Marie, for this uh, nice conversation on the, on the Monday morning. Can I say so? So to start my week with a smile. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Monique, and have an excellent day and excellent week. Thank you. Bye bye. Yes. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.